Good evening, and welcome back. We're glad you've joined us with our journey that we're having here in this, what I call, the Journal of Jesus. We've spent a couple of times together so far. Our first message, we looked at the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And we gave you a short phrase for those of you who were there. It simply says, let the Lord be the love of your life. Can you say that with me? Let the Lord be the love of your life. Our second message, we talked about the Bible. How best to understand it. It was a simple short phrase that says, the key to the code is to read and heed. Can you say that with me? The key to the code is to read and heed. Nothing so special. It's simply taking time to dig and read God's Word. And that's how we will get to know Him better. Let's pause a moment here. Holy Father, I pray that You will now speak through me that these will indeed be only Your words. We have come here this evening, Father, to listen to You. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You might have heard of them. Two men who were both schoolmates. One was called Luigi. He was an atheist. And his former classmate, Enrico. They were in their 70s. Luigi, 72. Enrico, 76. Luigi, the atheist. Enrico, the priest. And in Viterbo, Italy, Luigi, the atheist, just took Enrico, the priest, to court, charging him with false representation. Charging him and saying that this man has been deceiving people for years and making money of it because he was earning a, a paycheck as a, as a priest. And so they took the case to court. And just last Friday, a week ago, the results came in. The judge threw the case out of court and suggested that the prosecutors actually charge the atheist with slander for slandering the priest. Very interesting. Now, the, 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 the atheist hasn't given up. He wants to take it now to the European Union to appeal to a larger court, hoping that he can still win his case that so-called Jesus never existed. Folks, we're living in a strange, strange world where former classmates, one is suing the other about the fact that Jesus, Jesus did or did not exist. In fact, I saw something in the newspaper once. It said simply, culture versus Faith. Culture versus faith. A sociologist sees the end for traditional religion in the United States. As I read that interesting report, it says, it looks like traditional religious faith is dying. It's the end of traditional faith for us here. In fact, if you look at some statistics, statistics sorry, in Belgium, for example, several years ago, they checked 15 to 18 year olds. They did a study. And of these young people, teenagers, less than 4% said that they are absolutely sure that God even exists. Now that's Belgium. The United States is pretty different. 94% here around the same time said that we believe that God does exist. But of course the question is, what kind of a God do we serve? A God after our own order, after our own imaginings? In fact, somebody once pointed out that so many people got on to Graceland. You know Graceland? where Elvis Presley is buried, that uh, some people almost think he is a God. The question is, for this evening, what is God? How can we understand Him? Does He exist? By the way, Voltaire, that well-known French atheist said, the universe embarrasses me. Did you hear this? The universe embarrasses me, and I cannot think that this clock goes without a clockmaker. He admitted it. How can you have a clock without a clockmaker? Now, there have been some so-called traditional proofs for God. This one is called the teleological argument. There's the ontological argument, the cosmological argument. And different people have come up with different arguments to support what we believe is the existence of God. But you know, it's very interesting. It happened just recently in the last few months. Professor Anthony, or Anthony, he spells his name both ways, flew from the age of 15, by the way, he was an atheist. And for the last 50 plus years, Professor Anthony Flew has been the foremost 
philosophical atheist in the world. But something interesting has happened to Plu. Let me read to you just a few of his statements. It came out about, uh, two or three years ago, his first statement, Dr. Flew, who, by the way, has written dozens of books. He has lectured in Asia, in Europe, in the United States, Canada, and down in South America, well-respected, the foremost atheistic philosopher known. This is what he says, and I'm quoting now. <clears throat> he says, It has become inordinately difficult even to begin to think about constructing a naturalistic theory of evolution that first of that first reproducing organism. That's, of course, big words for something saying, look, there must be something else besides evolution. His second statement came out saying this. He is convinced that biologists have proven, have shown by the almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life, that intelligence must have been involved. Notice he's getting closer. Hold on, give you one more statement. In a telephone interview, December 2004, this is what he said. I'm quoting now. A superintelligence is the only good explanation for the origin of life and the complexity of nature. You know, I'll, I'll warn you, folk, the evolutionists are not happy with what he's saying. They're saying, well, you know, the man is getting old. He's losing his mind. Okay? Excuses. Now that Anthony Flew has switched and changed. Now, please don't misunderstand me. He is not claiming to follow any religion. He is not becoming a Christian. In fact, he calls himself, at best, a deist. One who believes there's a great clockmaker God who made the clock and left it running. But he has begun to switch his allegiance. And he says, why? Why has he changed? He said, I have lived my life following the dictum given by Socrates, that great Greek philosopher who said, follow the argument where it leads. Follow the argument where it leads. And my question to you, my question to me, are you, am I willing to follow the evidence where it leads? I hope you're open this evening as we look at the scriptures afresh, considering what God would teach us this evening. Open your Bibles with me now to Psalm 86, verse 10. We have several scriptures I'd like to share with you as we go here, looking at the Bible. Some of them, you'd need to have a pen and pe or pencil to write down the verses. We will not have time to look at every one of them, but I'm going to look at a few passages just to remind you and or to challenge you as we look at scripture this evening. Psalm 86, verse 10. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. You alone are God. Now the question, of course, somebody might say, but pastor, this text was written for the Jew. Hold on, go to the verse right before that. Go to verse 9. Was it for the Jew alone? Notice what Psalm 86 verse 9 says. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For the Jew only, what does the Bible say? All nations. In fact, it might remind you of that very well-known verse in John 3.16. Some of you might know it by heart. If you do, say it with me from the King James, those of us who learned it as a child, that says what? For God so loved what? The world. That's right. The God loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. John 3.16. So, of course, we know that this is not simply the God of the Jews. This is the God of the world. But how can we begin to describe or explain what, who, how God is? I was born, by the way, and raised in the country of South Africa, way down on the tip of Africa. Now, I know people have come and asked me different questions. Do you see lions in the street? No, we don't. Okay? It is quite a civilized country. When my wife Linda and I flew there on our honeymoon... As we landed in Johannesburg, she looked and she said, Whoa, this looks like New York City. And yes, indeed, the only place you can see lions are in game parks, okay, or in the zoos. But I was born and raised there on the tip of Africa. But however, if you went into what's called Central Africa, some of those places you might land up in what's called an equatorial jungle. And let's imagine for a moment that you dropped in, maybe parachuted in to an equatorial jungle and for the first time, you discover a primitive 
hunter-gatherer tribe of people who've never had any contact with the outside world, never had communication with the civilized world. They're a friendly people, by the way. So they welcome you. They're, they're surprised. They've never seen anybody come out of the sky. They might think you're a god. Okay? And so you, you watch, you listen, you learn because you're a linguist. And over time, you get to be able to begin to communicate. Let's say it takes you a year. You're pretty good. By the time the year is up, you've known what's happening in the society, and now they turn to you and they say, tell us ab- about where you have come from. <laughs> Let me ask you the question. How are you going to describe to them airplanes? The one out of which you jumped or bailed because it might have had a problem. How are you going to explain automobiles, skyscrapers, shopping malls, televisions, internet, PDAs, MP3 players? How are you going to describe to those people so that they will understand the world that you come from? Is it possible? Probably not. No way to understand it. Now, in a little sense, that's similar to the way if you want to try to understand God and us, we are worlds apart in a certain sense, worlds apart. But the best we can do is by means of analogy, comparison, contrast. In fact, Jesus did that in his parables. He spoke in parables so that people could get a picture of who God is. So I want to, this evening, look at a few of the incredible attributes of God. Let's go to Matthew chapter 19, verse 26, right here. Here is the story of, of course, Jesus with those disciples. The uh, belief of them was that people who were wealthy were blessed by God. That's why they were rich. All rich people were indeed blessed by God. Now, I don't want to minimize there are some wealthy people whom God has blessed, yes, because He knows that they can take care of the stewardship that He's given them to look after properly. But for the Jew, there was the belief that everyone who was wealthy was surely in God's favor. And of course, Jesus said in verse 23, Matthew 19, verse 23, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, wait a minute, hold on. Don't think it's so easy. Now, of course, he speaks, and the disciples are astonished. Matthew chapter 19, verse 25, the last five words in the New King James of chapter uh, 19, verse 25, who then can be saved, is the question that is asked. Now notice verse 26. But Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is what? Impossible. But, here's the key, with God, all things are possible. All things. That's the first one of God's attributes I'd like to emphasize here, what I call His infinity. God's infinity. How can I describe that? I went and checked to see how wealthy the richest man in the world is. Who is the richest man in the world? Bill Gates. William Gates III, right? For 12 years in a row, he has been number one in the world in Forbes magazine. How wealthy is he? Let me describe this to you right now. Let's imagine you had the wealth of Bill Gates. Listen carefully, ladies. Imagine you could, and gentlemen, you could go and spend one million dollars per day. Are you listening? A million dollars per day, every day, for 75 years of your life. I repeat, a million dollars per day, every day of your life for 75 years, and you would still have enough left. That is, enough for everyone here to get a million dollars left after you die, plus enough to have a funeral costing another hundred million dollars. In other words, a million dollars per day for 75 years and you would still end up with $300 million. That's Bill Gates' net worth right now. Can you imagine that? That's what he is worth. And that's after the stock market caused him to lose about half of his wealth. Infinity? Wow. Just imagine. But that is nothing when you go and look at other issues. Years ago when I was in college... I used to play chess, and I'm not recommending you play it because I know it's a waste of time and so forth. But as you play, as I played, we found out that it became more and more complex. After the, after three moves, you have nine million possible moves after the third one. If you play a 40 game, 40 move game of chess, and by the way, there are just 64 squares, 16 pieces each, 
for each player. A 40-game, 40 40-move 40 game, you have so many possibilities. Let me read it to you. 25 times 10 to the 155th power. That's 25 with 156 zeros behind it. That's how many permutations, how many possible moves there are in just one game of chess. I've heard of people who've gone crazy. Literally crazy. Playing chess. Infinity, unbelievable. But that is a smidgen in comparison with God's infinite abilities. Unbelievable. God is infinite. Let's go to Jeremiah for our second example. Jeremiah 23 verse 24. Another example. When we say God is infinite, I gave you two quick examples just to have you think. And I know that uh, imagine a million dollars a day for 75 years is just inconceivable. Jeremiah chapter 23 Verse 24, and don't forget, by the way, God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He has all the wealth in His hand. Let's go to Jeremiah 23, verse 24, and look what it says here. God speaking, Can anyone hide himself in secret places? So I shall not see him, says the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? In simple terms, our second major transcendent quality of God, He is omnipresent. Present everywhere, all the time. What does that mean? Let me describe that for you. It's been estimated that if you take one million of our planet, you know, you think our planet is big, pretty big, 25,000 miles or so around, a million of planet Earths, and you can put them into the volume of the sun. One million fitting into the sun. The sun is one of the stars. And I just checked to find out what the latest statistics were today. How many stars can the astronomers now see through the best telescopes available? The figure is absolutely unbelievable. Look at the figure as it comes up there. This is the amount of stars that you can actually see at present. That is 70,000 million, million, million. 70 sextillion that's how many stars they are able to see right now. That's seven with 22 zeros behind it. How large is that? Oh, it is incredible. Okay, that is 10 times. If you multiply that, you check, count every grain of sand on all the beaches and every grain of sand in all the deserts of this planet. That is 10 times the grains of sand on all the beaches and all of the deserts on planet Earth. That's the amount of stars out there, and that's only the amount of stars that human beings can currently see with present telescopes. You get an idea of the immensity of space. Unbelievable. Just incredible. And God is everywhere, folks. God is omnipresent. That's the kind of God we serve. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 147, verse 4 and 5. We serve an incredible God. And by the way, there's a new major telescope that is being um, built right now in Mexico on Sierra Negro. A brand new one that is even larger than anything before. They're busy constructing it on one of the six uh, highest volcanic peaks there. And so that's where they are, uh, a new telescope. Imagine what they're going to discover further on. Psalm 147, verse 4. He counts the number of the stars. Okay, imagine counting 70 Thousand, million, 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 or 70 sextillion stars. He counts the number of the stars. Notice the next line. He calls them all by name. Castor, Leonis, Piscium, Sirius, Linda Ray Dupre. Yes, you folk didn't know that. A few years ago, when my wife turned a major milestone in her life, I heard about this star registry. And for $50, if you really love your spouse, gentlemen, and you want to do something really special, you can have a star that currently has a number named for your spouse. So I did that, and my wife treasures that fact that she has a star that is named for her, which is why I read the names of the stars, and I read Linda's name as well. But then what I, what I did is I calculated. I said, if my Bible says, he calls them all by name. Now, if it's only these 70 thousand, million, million, million stars. Let's imagine we have seen it all, which probably isn't so anyway. But let's imagine we've seen all the stars, right? 
Let's imagine that for a moment. If God has to call the names of them, let's be literal for a moment. It's just getting an idea across. And he can call two stars per second. I went and calculated it. You know how long would it take? If you count two stars per... If you just say Sirius Castor and you give the names, it will take one quadrillion years to name all the stars. That is, every second without stopping. I went and counted this. This is incredible. Okay? One quadrillion. That is one thousand million million years just naming the stars of only the 70,000 million 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 that we can see. Talk about God's infinity, God's omnipresence. It just blows your mind. And then I was chatting with some after this, this afternoon's meeting and they said, what about the small things? You know, nanotechnology. There's micro... I just... I, I didn't go that direction, okay? I went for the big stuff. Wow. Let's go to verse 5. We serve an awesome God. Psalm 147, verse 5. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. You can put another word right there because we've been talking about God's infinity, God's omnipresence here, God's omnipotence. And there are many Psalms that talk about the great power of the God we serve. Mighty in power. And then the next part of the verse says, His understanding is infinite. We put the word omniscient there. We're just mentioning four of God's incredible powers. Omniscient. Isaiah chapter 46 says, verse 9 and 10, He sees the end way from the beginning. God is all-knowing, understands everything. What an incredible God we serve. Go quickly to Psalm 19, verse 1, because this was basically the psalm, or the concept from the psalm, that brought about the turnaround for that well-known atheist, Anthony Flew. Let's go to Psalm 19, verse 1. It was as he considered the evidence of nature that Professor Dr. Anthony Flew had a change in mind. Now, he hasn't come all the way yet. I want to challenge you folks to pray for him. Imagine this former atheist, now a deist. What would happen if he becomes a theist, a Christian believer? It would be an incredible witness to the openness of a, mi of a mind to follow the evidence where it leads. I hope to God that he will follow that way. And one day, imagine if Anthony Flew becomes a preacher like his Methodist father. Yes. Let's look at Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. We serve a great God. We've been talking about God's transcendence. But you know what, folks? The danger is, as in Professor Flew's case, he says, I believe in a God out there, this great transcendent God. But that is only half the picture of the God of the Bible. That's only half. Let's go to the other half right now. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. We've got to go to that. There are more wonderful transcendent characteristics of God that we're not mentioning here. He's, the fact that He's eternal, that He's immutable, etc. But let's go to the other characteristics, the other side, if you please, of this Almighty God we serve. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, moves from the transcendent God, the God out there, to what theologians call the imminent God. Immanent, I-M-M-A, the God inside, the God close by. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. The secret things belong to whom? The Lord our God. So there are certain mysteries we cannot fathom. Cannot begin to fathom the things I just showed you here on the screen. It's way beyond our imagination. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But, notice the three letters there? B-U-T. But... Those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law, of this law, of this Torah, of this teaching. The Hebrew word Torah includes God's instruction. That we may do all the words of God's instruction, God's teaching. In other words, folks, God wants us to have a close relationship. So He reveals certain things to us so that we can get to know Him on a person-to-person -person basis. Let's look at an example of that in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Because here is an interesting experience of Moses. Moses who wanted to know God, he wanted to see God. And incidentally, just like us, like we are curious people, we always want to see things. Moses says, Lord, in chapter 33, by the way, verse 18, he says, please show me your glory. 
Moses wants to see. You know how often we say, seeing is believing. Uh-uh. God says, no, Moses, I cannot show you. And then what does God do? He reveals not his glory, but he tells Moses who he is. Look at chapter 34, verse 6 now. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. By the way, stop right there. Did you notice the word Lord is a capital L and then small caps O-R-D? Did you notice that in your Bible? That's the personal name of God. When the translators translated the Bible, they did not translate God's personal name. Nobody really knows what God's personal name is. Interestingly, why not? Because the Jews, and by the way, this is a very important practical lesson for us in today's world, the Jews considered God's name so sacred that they removed the vowels from the name so that nobody could accidentally even call God's name in vain. And as the vowels were removed over centuries, they forgot which vowels belonged there. All they were left with were the consonants, Y-H-W-H. And the scholars call it the tetra for four, grammaton. And so they don't know what God's name is. So there's been speculation. They call him Yahweh, Jehovah. We don't know. The translators simply say the Lord and they put it in small caps. So whenever your Bible has capital L, small capital O-R-D, that's the personal name of God. And it's fascinating as you read the Bible carefully, you will see how many times the Lord in His personal, the personal name of God comes as He interacts with human beings. Here, the personal name of God is mentioned as He personally interacts with Moses. The Lord, He says, in other Jehovah, Yahweh, the Lord, Jehovah Yahweh, God, merciful or compassionate and gracious, long-suffering, in simple terms, slow to anger, and abounding in goodness and truth. Some Bibles say, and faithfulness. I love the fact that my God is faithful. I can trust Him. One of my favorite verses, we'll talk about it later in the series, is 1 Corinthians, put it in the parentheses right there. I want you to read it at home. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. It's a verse that gives you so much courage because when you have problems and trials, it says, don't worry. Three words, God is faithful. Okay? You read that verse later on at home. But let's stay here in Exodus chapter 33, 34, verse 6. And notice the rest, verse 7 now. Verse 7. Keeping mercy for thousands. I want you to pause there. Keeping mercy for thousands. We think of thousands of people. But you know what? Put in parentheses again. And read this at home. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. You know what it says there? God keeps mercy for thousands of generations. Aha! Not just thousands of people. And, and Deuteronomy 7 verse 9 brings it out in its fullness. So, let's read this again. With the Deuteronomy passage in mind, verse 7. Keeping mercy for thousands of generations. And you see the contrast. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. By no means clearing the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now that last part sounds horrible. Oh, God is going to bring punishment upon people for what you do. But let me ask you the question. Someone ever stolen something from you? What do you want? Justice. Someone ever blackened your name, slandered you, caused you problems? Guess what? We all want justice when it's in our favor. Isn't that true? Okay? So we serve a God that is both loving and just. Graceful and also a holy God. That's the kind of God we serve. Wonderful God. But here's the question that comes up so many times. If we serve this good God, why is there so much pain and suffering in this world? Why would a good God allow that? Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73, because you and I are not the only ones who ask that question. Way back, a psalmist, and as you know, David didn't write all of the psalms. This psalm was written by a man by the name of Asaph, A-S-A-P-H, a psalm of Asaph. Psalm 73, as we read this psalm, we find out that here, Asaph is raising the same old question that is raised today. Psalm 73, verse 3 says, For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In other words, God, why, why are we who are faithful? Why are we not prosperous? Why are the crooks getting the money? Look, go down to verse 6. Therefore, Pride serves as their necklace. In other words, they wear it quite proudly. Their ornamentation. Violence covers them like a garment. They're saturated in violence. 
Verse 7, their eyes bulge with abundance. What a picture, eh? They've got more than they need in simple terms. They have more than heart could wish. These are the wicked. Go down to verse 12. Behold, these are the ungodly. He's complaining to the Lord, who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. It's too painful to think about how the wicked are progressing and everybody's doing okay. And here I am, Lord, following you. And look what's happening. But notice the solution. Go back to verse 16. I'm going to read it again. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful to, for me, dash, verse 17, until I went into where? The sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end or their destiny. Fascinating. God will provide answers as we come together, as we fellowship in His sanctuary, literally. And also, God will provide answers as we dig into studying about the whole sanctuary and all those wonderful truths. We will be looking at that further on. As we study, as we understand the sanctuary message Better, we will see that God has the answers to all of these problems that we face. Let me share with you a practical story. Somebody sent this to me. Man went to a barber one day, walked in, sat down. <clears throat> barber began to cut his hair. And as often happens, if you go back to the same man over and over, you, be, you strike up a friendship. They began talking. Somehow the subject went on to religious things. And the barber said, God doesn't exist. The man whose hair was being cut was a Christian. He didn't want to get into an argument. Obviously, it's, very, it's not very safe to get into an argument with a barber. You know what I mean? He's got those... <clears throat> just kidding. <laughs> but anyways, he didn't get in an argument. He just kept quiet, which is always the best. Don't get involved in an argument. Just wait. The Lord will provide the best answer. He was finished. He walked out. Thank you, sir. While he was outside, he bumped into what we can call a street person. Disheveled unkempt hair, untrimmed beard, stringy and dirty. And immediately, the clean-shaven man walked back with nice cut hair. He said, excuse me, sir, I just realized barbers don't exist. The barber looked at him and said, what do you mean? I just cut your hair. He said, oh no, barbers do not exist. Definitely not. And then, of course, he brought specimen number one along. He said, look at this man. Unkempt hair, uncut, untrimmed, stringy, horrible beard. You see, barbers don't exist. Look at it. Look. The barber said, come on. That's not the fact that barbers don't exist. The problem is, they don't come to me. The message, I believe, came through to the man. The problem is, people don't come to God. It's got nothing to do with whether God exists or not. People don't come to Him. Go to verse 28 of that same chapter. Verse 28. Let's go there right now. Ending that chapter. But it is good. What does God say? For me, this is Asaph speaking, but it is good for me to draw near to God. It is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Folks, I have one line I'd like to leave with you. It's a simple, I try to keep it to nine or ten words. It simply says, to know God, don't say no to God. Simple sentence. You want to say that with me? To know God, don't say no to God. You want to repeat that? To know God, don't say no to God. We'll have it up on the screen coming soon. That's a simple phrase I'd like you to memorize. To know God, don't say no to God. The best way to understand God is to accept Him into your heart. It's only as you have that personal relationship that you will be able to understand Him. You want to say it with me again? To know God, don't say no to God. Thank you. I want you to turn now to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Because here we find a very good explanation of the kind of God we serve. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Moses was being called by God. Remember the story? The burning bush experience. 
And then he's willing to go now and he says, but God, when I get to those people in slavery and uh, they say, who has sent you? What shall I tell them? What is your name? Exodus chapter 3 verse 14, what does God say? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Now that sounds like a riddle. Hold on. He's not, God is not done. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am. What kind of a name is that? In simple terms, the I am is the ever-present God. He is always there. He's there for you right now. He will always be there with you throughout the future. The God who will protect, provide, take care of you for the rest of your life. That's the God. That's His name, the I am. And interestingly, His name Yahweh or Jehovah is very much tied in to this concept of I am in the original Hebrew. This is the God. Notice verse 15. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. So, the God of Abraham, they all knew the God of Abraham, but now He gives His name. I am. I am the ever-present One. There's a beautiful statement, well known by the Jews, when they talk about who is God. And I want you to go there to Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 now. Because as we talk about God, so far we've used the word, the title. By the way, God is not a name. God is a title. Because there's the God of the Israelites. There's the God of the Canaanites. God is a title. Okay? But we've used the word God and it sounds like in the singular. And when we get to Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4, this is a well-known phrase. It's often called by the Jews the Shema. Shema comes from the word hear. Because it says, hear, O Israel. So it's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? Is one. And so this verse has been used to say, look, there is only one God. There is no such thing as the Trinity. What do we as Christians do? How do we biblically respond to that question? The Lord, the Lord is one. Now, some have tried different ways to respond. Some have said, well, you see, it was God manifested in three different forms at three different points in life. That's called modalism. God was here as the Creator, then He was God as Jesus, then He was God as the Holy Spirit. No, that's not what the Christian view is. Some have come up with a new thing and said, well, there are actually three gods. That's tritheism or polytheism, more than one God. But let's go back and look at what the uh, text itself says. Here it says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You know, it's very interesting. The word one here is a unique word. It's a word that is used. It is not the normal word for one, as in solo or solitary. It's the word here for, for the same passage. Go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 for a moment. I want you to go to Genesis 2, 24 here. I want you to notice the same word for one that is found right there. Genesis 2, verse 24. It's the same word used in the relationship between Adam and Eve. And I want you to notice what it says. Genesis 2, verse 24, talking about Adam and Eve. And it says something about them. Very interesting. Because some people say, wait a minute, it says God is one. But notice, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become what? One flesh. That's right. They shall become one flesh. Fascinating. Which means two can be one. So if two can be one, cannot three be one? Yes. It's a concept of a relational uh, situation right here. Two being one. Incidentally, Moses did have available to him a different word. This word here was the word for one as a unity of persons. Moses also had another word that can be used. One being solitary. One unique. The only one. As in no other. And that's a completely different word. It's um, yahid for those who are interested in the Hebrew. And Moses knew about that word. He used it for Isaac, the unique son of Abraham. But that is not the word that's being used here. So when you, when this text says the Lord is one, it's one, but a, a unity of different persons. Fascinating. When you dig deeper into the Bible, the problems get solved. And incidentally, when you go to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God says what? Let us make man in our image. You know that passage so well. You don't even have to refer to it. But 
So when we look at the whole picture in Genesis 1 verse 3, it says the Spirit of God was moving across the waters. So we know that the Spirit of God was there. And then we go to John chapter 1 for the rest of the story. A well-known passage. I want you to turn there with me because here John, under inspiration, begins to fill us in on what I call the rest of the story. Who was actively involved? We know it says God. It says the Spirit of God. Now notice John chapter 1 verses one and 3. John 1, verses 1 and 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Go down to verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Now the question is, who is the Word? Go down to verse 14. Fascinating. Verse 14 identifies it and says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Question, who came and became flesh here? Jesus. So we know this verse says that Jesus was the active agent in creation. So we have the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, folks, the Jews. When Jesus said in John 8, 58 and 59, remember that statement? He said, before Abraham was, I am. What did they do? They picked up stones in order to kill him because in John 5 verse 18 it says, anyone who claims to be God will be stoned. So the Jews understood very clearly that Jesus claimed to be God. So as we study the picture, we say, wait a minute, this is fascinating. We can never fully understand it. How can three be one God? Somebody has called this the heavenly trio. Ever thought of that? Because when you have a trio, they sing together. They sing one song, right? But they sing in beautiful harmony. Have you ever heard a trio of three sisters, perhaps? When I was growing up, we had three sisters. As a kid, I used to sit and listen to them. And their voices blended so beautifully. They could switch parts and no one would know who was singing. Because their voices were so close together. You know what I'm talking about. And so here we have what we call the heavenly trio, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, working together for the salvation of mankind. And of course, by the way, in case you forgot, Acts chapter 5 identifies the Holy Spirit very clearly as being God. But I want to hurry on to one more major passage, beautiful passage, Matthew chapter 28, the last book of, uh, chapter of Matthew, the last chapter, and the second last verse, because here it captures in a nutshell this great triune God, the transcendent God, the omnipresent, the omnipotent, the omniscient, the infinite God, and at the same time, this wonderful, imminent God, the holy God, the God of justice, of mercy, of righteousness, of truth, the God who not just lives out there, but he also wants to live right in here in our hearts. Here are the final words of Jesus. He is now giving the disciples what we call the Great Commission. And in that is an interesting statement that shows us very clearly the Trinity. Verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. Notice, singular. And, and it's clear in the Greek, and the English Bibles bring it out, not in the names, no, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The Trinity works together. They are all actively involved, working for your salvation and for mine. I came across a story. It happened on the other side of the United States, the East Coast, more than 20 years ago. To be precise, 24 years ago. It was January 1982. A very, very cold, freezing, bitterly cold, snowy January day. The airport was clogged with traffic. The roads were clogged. The government offices were closed. But there were people that wanted to get to their destination. And so the, the planes were de-iced. But as they went down the runway, there was a long waiting line. Florida Flight 90, Air Florida Flight 90, was sitting on the runway for almost 50 minutes, during which time ice and snow got packed on the airfoils of that plane. Unfortunately, the crew did not activate the mechanism to cause that to melt, and so they were packed with ice on those wings. At 3.59, they started taxiing down the runway. 
struggled to lift off. They had to go a half a mile further than normal to lift off. They lifted off at 3.59, were airborne for only two minutes when the plane crashed into the 14th Street Bridge across the Potomac River and plunged into the frozen river on the other side, killing four or five people on the bridge in their cars. The tail section broke off. Everybody else perished in the plane, 73 of them immediately from the evidence that they discovered later on. Six people were there hanging on to the tail section. They called for help, the passing motorists, those who survived, The only help was one helicopter that arrived. A pilot by the name of Donald Usher and a paramedic by the name of Gene Windsor. And they arrived there to see the devastation of the bridge. Traffic and everything stalled. And so they dropped the line down. The line, a man by the name of Arlen Williams got the line. He passed it on to one passenger and they whisked the passenger to the bank in in safety, and there were people there who helped. Another passenger, and every time the line came, Arland Williams passed the line on to another passenger. Repeatedly. When they came back for the last time to pick up Arland Williams, he and the tail section of the plane had disappeared below the frozen river. The coroner report later on said that the only person from the evidence who died from drowning, was Arland Williams. Everybody else had had perished in the plane. People were so surprised, so taken aback at one man's self-sacrifice, willing to die to save the life of others, that that bridge was renamed the Arland D. Williams Jr. Memorial Bridge. When I think of that story, it brings to mind a vivid picture a modern-day parable, if you please, of the pilot, God, with the Holy Spirit, the paramedic, and by the way, in Scripture, he is called the paraclete, the comforter. And right here on planet Earth, in the frozen waters, where we are as survivors, hoping to survive, who is in the water with us? None other than Jesus Christ, our Savior. He passes that line on to every one of us, wanting us to be saved, and in the process, He gives His life so that we can be saved. And of course, we know that that bridge, the bridge itself, Jesus is the bridge, folks. That's what John chapter 1, verse 51 says, you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is the bridge from earth to heaven. When I think of the story of Arland Williams, of a man who was willing to die for people, people that he probably had never met before. Then I think of Jesus willing to die for you, willing to die for me, giving his life for those of us who he wants to give us a chance for salvation. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. When I think of Christ, I think of what he did. I think of the immensity of this universe, and yet he's willing to come and die for you. He's willing to die for me. I say, what a God we serve. What a wonderful Savior we have. Thank God for what He is willing to do. Folks, the God we serve is incredible. We're going to sing a hymn here, My Maker and My King. And as we sing the hymn, I'm going to ask our deacons to hand out to you, pass along the aisles, decision cards. Because this evening, I don't want the evening to go by without us having given you a chance to make a decision for Jesus. My Maker and my King, to Thee my all I owe. Number 15, I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing this beautiful hymn to God's glory. And our deacons will hand these out. And then I'm going to make uh, an appeal or two. So if you can stand and sing with me right now, My Maker and my King, to Thee my all I owe. O Lord, How majestic is your name in all the earth. When we look at the starry heavens and we see just a glimpse of your greatness, we stand, no Lord, we kneel in awe to realize that you love us, sinful human beings, 
thank you, thank you, thank you, Holy Father, for being willing to send Jesus Christ to come to this freezing river of earth. For without Jesus being willing to be in the river, being willing to give his life for us, so to as the story has just been shared, we would not have a chance at life. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on Calvary for each one of us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being present in this world. Right now, Lord, as we kneel before you, there are some of us who need to give our lives completely to you for the first time. So, Father, I pray on their behalf, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Yes, Lord, there are some of us who might have slipped away through inattentiveness, through rebellion, or, Lord, perhaps through being too busy. Father, we recommit our lives to Jesus. Oh, Holy Father, we need you every moment of every day. So right now, Lord, we commit ourselves into your presence in the name of Jesus, our Savior, who died for our sins. Amen. We're going to invite you to just spend a few more moments in your seats quietly. If you need to, take these moments to fill out the card as you feel the Lord impressing you. So if we can have just a little bit of music for a minute or two so that you can complete doing that. And if the God has impressed you to fill out the card, we have our deacons at the door. You can drop the card in. And we will look at the questions, the requests, the needs. The team will be praying for you. May God bless you, richly bless you, as you keep spending time with Him in prayer, in the reading of His Word, and in sharing His love with others.